people are paralyzed and become numb in the face of the enormity of the problems. Indifference and apathy is a byproduct of capitalism. Um, but the good news is that there are techniques and there are ideas and there are there is human innovation and kind of irrepressible creativity that exists to address the most salient needs of our society. That was Jeff Krasno, and I'm Henry Winslow. You're listening to Dharma Talk. Dharma Talkers, thank you for checking out the show. I appreciate you being here as always. If you're listening to this on the day it's released, it's now the second week of January 2020. How are you doing on those New Year's resolutions? If this is the year you want to get consistent with your daily yoga practice, or you are looking to go deeper into your sadhana, come give Henry Yoga app a try. This is my consciously designed 40 day, 40 minutes daily program of Hatha Vinyasa classes and skill building workshops. You can get the first two classes free at henryyoga.com. All right, it's a new year, a new decade, and potentially a fresh start, not just for each of us at an individual level, but also for our society as a collective, for humanity at large. And that's a good thing. Because let's be honest, we're in kind of a dark place right now. Our planet is being exploited to unprecedented levels. Income disparity in the U.S. is at an all-time high. And the powers that be have no desire to disrupt the crony capitalist system that's sending us down this death spiral to destruction. The solution? Well, my guest this week says it comes down to integrating universal principles, truths, values back into our society. We're living in a valueless system and the problems at hand are not economic nor political in nature. They're spiritual. And he believes it can only be the power of community that will usher us into a new era of societal transformation and well-being. Now let me take this opportunity to thank my gracious sponsor. This episode is brought to you in part by Yoga East Austin. The last two weeks, you may have heard me mention how excited I am about a three-day immersion with Benjamin Sears happening down in my old yoga spot in Austin, Texas. My friends at Yoga East Austin recently started tagging these types of events as, quote, higher education simply because they are presented by masterful and incredible teachers, usually with at least a decade of teaching experience. What I admire most about these events is that the entire teaching staff at Yoga East Austin jumps in, eager to learn and lead their students by example, which in turn creates an environment that elevates continued yoga education to the highest priority. Teachers out there listening, we all learn from somebody, right? Each of these higher education events represents the culmination of learning from traditional and modern yogis alike, teachings that have been passed down from years of practice with legendary teachers, integrated with experimentation and cross-pollination from the ever-evolving modern yoga landscape. The next continued education event for teachers and students of all levels will be offered by my good friend and previous Dharma Talk guest, Benjamin Sears. 
the founder of Lux Yoga and creator of the Sacred Geometry Vinyasa Yoga System. Ben has been studying and teaching for 13 plus years from far too many yogis to list out now, but also from modern and popular breath and movement modalities such as Katona Yoga, Functional Range Conditioning, and the Ido Portal and Wim Hof Methods. This three-day intensive on February 7th through 9th will include everything from pranayama and meditation to functional mobility and asana. Plus, I know Tatiana will be there assisting Ben, and she is an incredible mover and yogini with a decade of teaching experience unto herself. Added bonus, East Austin is an amazing place to visit and eat. Whether you're into the best barbecue or a mindful vegan, East Austin offers something for everyone. Yoga East Austin is also conveniently located in a neighborhood with plenty of Airbnbs and restaurants and stores all within walking distance of the yoga studio. So if you want to learn about your body from someone that has a wealth of knowledge moving pain-free in an excellent city location, I might add, this training immersion is for you. Check out yogaeastaustin.com slash Benjamin for more info on this three-day weekend event happening February 7th through 9th in Austin, Texas. Do not miss out. And use promo code HENRYWINS at checkout to save 15%. This episode is brought to you in part by 10,000, purveyors of my favorite practice shorts. GQ calls them, quote, the answer to the over-neoned, hyped, and played-out workout gear, end quote. And these guys pride themselves on the simplicity and comfort of their products, two features I look for in all my clothing, on or off the mat. My favorite style is the Session Short, which is the lightest and most minimalist of the catalog. There's a lot of integrity that goes into these shorts. You can really tell. We're talking exceptionally high-quality construction, which makes for a lightweight yet durable pair of shorts. And the integrity doesn't stop at the product. The brand ethos really resonates with me, too. 10,000 stands for a commitment to the daily practice of self-improvement and the constant pursuit to be just a little better than yesterday. Men, give these shorts a try, and I promise you will not be disappointed. Women, they make a great gift, just saying. So grab a pair or a few at henrywins.com slash 10,000 and use code henrywins at checkout to get 20% off. Once again, that's henrywins.com slash T-E-N-T-H-O-U-S-A-N-D and use code henrywins to save 20% on your order of any size. Full disclosure, this brand is not a paid sponsor, but I am an affiliate, meaning when you order their products, I'll earn a small commission for sending you their way. So if you'd like to support the show, you can buy one of the items I recommend, and you'll not only receive a high-quality product, but also know that you're helping to keep Dharma Talk up and running. As far as other ways to support, please subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts, which helps more than you know with discoverability. Or make a one-time or recurring donation at henrywins.com slash donate. All right, now back to the show. Jeff Krasno, at Jeff Krasno, K-R-A-S-N-O on Instagram, is the founder of Wonderlust, which is a global series of wellness events, and also the CEO and founder of Commune an online education platform featuring spiritual and wellness-oriented thought leaders. 
Quick sidebar, if you have not checked out Commune, you must. They have an amazing model that's really democratizing the way that these courses can be distributed and ideas shared. All of the courses are free for a period of time, and only after that, if you'd like to keep them, you're asked to pay. So go check out Commune. Back to Jeff's bio. In all of his work, he focuses on fostering community and connection as a means to heal and transform. Jeff is the author of two books and the host of the Commune podcast. Now, if this episode resonates with you, we're touching on some different kind of topics from usual here, then please go to dharmatalk.show and type Jeff in the search bar, J-E-F-F, and you'll find all the notes, highlights with timestamps, and links for this episode, including Jeff's recommended book and his own two books. And just a quick reminder, if you're ever looking for something to read and inspire your mind, check out my running list of every book ever recommended on Dharma Talk. Jeff's books, not only the ones that he wrote, but the one he recommends, are all going to be up there. Go to henrywins.com books and pick one out. Now, without further ado, please enjoy my interview with Jeff Krasno. Jeff Krasno, welcome to Dharma Talk. I'm so happy to have you on here, fellow podcaster and um, aficionado of many of the things that I'm interested in as well. So how are you? I'm well. Honored to be here, share some time with you, get to know you in front of thousands of people. (laughs) Okay, well, we always start with the same first question. This will be a great way for me to get to know you. And um, the question is this, what does the word Dharma mean to you? And what is your dharma as you understand it today? Yeah, sure. It's, um, it's an interesting word because it has many uh, meanings and connotations. I suppose for me, I've gravitated toward the notion of it being my righteous path. Um, and I suppose I judge my righteous path on the degree to which I can align my works and actions with my highest spiritual guidelines, sort of regardless of external conditions. Um, and I suppose that that's pretty clinical. Um, and I suppose what that means for me is living a life of connectivity, of interdependence, of connection, of fostering connection and community. I couldn't help but notice the the uh, conditional clause there at the end, or I don't know if that's the right grammatical term, but regardless of external conditions, do the external conditions seem to be the challenges that rear their head in that pursuit of aligning your works to spiritual guidelines? Uh, I think they most always are. I think for everybody. Um, we're programmed in so many ways to approach life from a place of scarcity and separateness. Um, and, uh, and that can rear its head in specific circumstances, often quite banal, but sometimes very grandiose and acute. Um, and, uh, you know, that could pertain to how we think about money, how we think about our own human potential, how we think about God, how we think about our relationship with nature, um, how we think about our relationship with other people. So I think it's always coming back 
to the notion that we are not separate um, and that life is abundant and not scarce. Um, and, and that to cultivate that awareness and live in that is, um, is not simple. It's not easy given essentially the external conditions, you know, capitalism, addiction, um, et cetera. So I think it's, you know, really being able to cultivate a practice that keeps you in that alignment with your highest principles um, and that awareness of your patterns that may kind of default towards the ego, towards separateness, towards identifying yourself through the eyes of other people or what you have or what you do, your resume, how much money you make, what you have, et cetera, that you're separate from other people, you're in competition with other people, you're separate from God or your higher spirit as you understand it. Um, so yeah, I think, you know, that those are the conditions of our, of modernity, I guess. Um, and, uh, and that's what, I don't want to say that's what we're up against. Um, but I think that's what we're practicing for ah. is to recognize that and to continually operate with some form of spiritual moral compass. Mm -hmm. I think there's an idea floating around out there that in order to live a spiritual life or to, to maintain some sort of spiritual or moral compass that we are at odds with capitalism. You mentioned that as being one of these external conditions that can lead us back to this program scarcity and away from connection, community. But I see you as someone who has been able to reckon with that, that balance and find a way to synchronize capitalism with connection and community. You know, as the founder of Wonderlust and also of Commune, these are both, you know, they're businesses and yet they are bringing people closer together. Can you talk a little bit about how you do that and how those two concepts, which might seem to be separate, can actually come together to greater effect? Sure. I'm happy to do that. And I will also say it's something I'm still reckoning with, to be honest. Yeah. Um, and there's some things that over the course of the last 13, 14 years, as I've devoted myself towards, I suppose, fostering community around mindful living and, it, and really chasing scale, um, I've learned some things along the way um, that I think have bent the arc of how I think about it. Um, but I, I guess I'd just say, you know, from a, you know, how do you create socially conscious business or kind of mission driven business, double line, um, businesses, double bottom line businesses. Um, you know, I've always found that if you can essentially align your mission with the profitability of your entity, then you don't create misalignment where you're constantly making sacrifices and compromises. So essentially, if your mission is to bring the ideas and practices of great teachers to a billion people, let's say, um, then the achievement of that mission would also 
translate to a very, very successful business. So those things aren't at odds with each other. Oftentimes I see businesses that have a philanthropic mission that are completely unaffiliated with what the company and the people within the company do every day. And, uh, and, and that's just ripe for misalignment and compromise and frustration and anxiety. So I, I think there's a way to essentially set up your business where, again, your mission and the profitability of that business are, um, are interwoven. And then I think, you know, there's also a lot of things that you can do from, a, you know, like Wanderlust became a B Corp. It was very, very hard to do uh, because we didn't start as one. And to meet the criteria of a B Corp is, um, is very, very difficult after you're five or six years in, into a business, especially one like Wanderlust. Um, but we did finally achieve it and qualify for it. And, and, it, and it required us to change you know, our articles of incorporation to alter the core purpose of the business, not just to, um, not just as the, that the directors and the shareholders that their primary function was not just to deliver, was not just based around a fiduciary duty, but it was also based around mm -hmm. social profit. And so, I, you know, I think there's things that essentially you can do to set up a business to work uh, kind of in harmony. Why um, would you take that extra effort to reorganize the business as a B Corp for, for the uninitiated? What is a B Corp and, um, and, and why take that extra step when it's inconvenient? <laughs> That's it. Yeah, it was very inconvenient and costly and, you know, and required a lot of time and effort to do so. Um, but in the end it was something that I think we really believed in. It was a challenge kind of internally for us of like, can we get there? Can we meet the standards uh, that in some ways were very difficult to meet around environmental standards, carbon footprint standards, um, how essentially we treat and pay our employees, the benefits that they have, family leave oriented um, things. And, you know, to be honest, like Wanderlust, though it had the perception and has the perception of being like a kind of a big business within the industry of yoga and well-being, it was and remains kind of a bootstrap business, to be honest. Um, and, uh, and so, you know, it was hard to meet all of those qualifications. You know, some companies like, you know, Patagonia or my friend Nancy Green, who's the CEO of Athleta, which is a athleisure part of the gap, you know, these companies are very, very well capitalized. They've been around for a super long time. They're highly profitable. Um, and to be able to meet, and I applaud, I, I love what they do and I'm huge fans. They've been mentors and, and models for me as I look at the business landscape, but they have, you know, um, resources that we didn't have, you know, in order to achieve, uh, B Corp status. B Corp status is essentially, B, B Corp is a, I guess I would call it a, um, a body that certifies certain businesses around a whole variety of, uh, I guess, mission-driven criteria, some of which I've just described. And, um, and there's benefits from being a B Corp um, because there's a community of other B Corps that um, of other businesses 
that um, that then sort of commune with each other and help each other. And there's events. Um, we actually just hosted a big B Corp event at Wanderlust Hollywood right across the street from where I am uh, that brings kind of C-suite um, uh, folks from all sorts of other B Corps. And it's a great opportunity to meet other mission-driven entrepreneurs and founders and CEOs um, and find um, and find synergies. Uh, but yeah, but it was a, it was a difficult haul for us. But it was something that I think we really believed in, something that we really wanted to push ourselves around, just because we felt like that would keep us in alignment with these higher principles. Um, like I talked about at the beginning, um, I think you can apply Dharma to a business and not just an individual. Um, and uh, and then you know I I think we wear it as a badge of honor we don't flout it but it's like on the website and i think that that means something to you know our guest um and i firmly believe more and more every day that people invest in things that they believe in uh and i see i think you see that in the commercial marketplace in general um and i think you know more and more i hope that there's an awareness for what a b corp is and that you know um discerning consumers who can vote three times a day with the food that they eat and buy um, and can express kind of their opinions and change the world, have impact through their consumer behaviors. Uh, I hope that more and more they make decisions around the, um, the corporate charters of the businesses. And I, and I think that that is, that is happening. Right. There, there are many ways to invest. It's not just, we're not just talking about the venture capital firms injecting capital into businesses they believe in. We're talking about the end user, the consumer, the guest, and their ability to vote with their dollars. And also as someone who might be looking for a job and a cause to rally around, you know, you've raised your hand to identify as a business that has a mission beyond profitability. Yes, profitability counts for something and it furthers the mission, but it's not the be all end all. Uh, I like what you said about how doing that helps you to be surrounded more by others that are also mission driven. What are some other uh, missions outside of the mission of Wonderlust and Commune that you've been exposed to that are exciting to you right now in the business world? Yeah, I mean, there are, a number. I think that, um, you know, we talked a little bit about uh, regenerative farming, for example, um, before we started recording. And I th there is a beautiful movement um, right now that is being led around regenerative farming, um, essentially techniques uh, around agriculture that not only promotes sustainability, but regenerate the soil, allow for more water capture, um, high, enrich uh, our soil, and, um, and can triple yields. Um, and, uh, and there's a lot of not only great research, but, um, but great companies and nonprofits that are getting involved with spreading of regenerative practices, um, namely Kiss the Ground, who we've worked with very closely and produced a, um, a course with on commune around soil as the climate uh, solution 
where essentially not only can you produce uh, healthy, nutrient-rich food, but you can also sequester carbon um, through these practices, essentially, you know, putting it back in the earth where we've kind of sucked it out from through uh, mining of fossil fuels and essentially misdistributed and displaced it into the atmosphere and into the oceans, um, that there are practices that we can employ to actually put it back into the ground. Um, so I think, you know, so that that's one that is particularly interesting. Um, I think there's a lot going on right now. There's a company called Seed that I really am intrigued by and um, have recently just met uh, that's doing a lot in the microbiome space, um, you know, really mining and spreading, mining the data and the research, but also kind of spreading the notion that, to be honest, like we thought we were these incredibly complex creatures with these, uh, you know, with um, a highly complicated genome. And then, you know, we did the Human Genome Project and came back with the fact that like we only had about 20,000 genes less than a fruit fly. <laughs> um, and that kind of opened up this research and science into the microbiome. And we found out that we're mostly the bacteria and the fungi that lives in our gut and on our bodies. Um, and that we have a tremendous amount of control and free will around our own health and well-being through the manipulation of this bacteria, um, what we eat, what we put on our skin, um, Etc. And so I think that that is a space that's going to be um, kind of more and more kind of interesting. And I think there'll be more and more interesting kind of products and services in that space. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that is very interesting. It kind of gives a whole new uh, frame of mind around the idea of the body as a temple. It's like we, we think about the body being this physical temple for the soul, but even at the physical level, maybe this vessel here is really just a container for all these trillions of microorganisms that are driving, that are behind the steering wheel to begin with. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And you talk, uh, I think, you know, we talk about a lot about the notion of oneness about connect connectivity around connection um and then you know here we have like this incredible inter interdependence between these anaerobic uh microbacteria that live in our gut that are responsible for an increasingly number of number of things from you know our digestion to brain health um, to essentially every hormone that's secreted in our body, um, toward, you know, essentially inflammation, um, that protect us from, you know, intestinal permeability, leaky gut, um, that can cause kind of constant states of inflammation that are linked to essentially every chronic disease. Um, so, you know, more and more of this kind of information is, is coming out and it makes a lot of sense because, we are so interdependent with nature and we have become increasingly divorced from it. And, you know, again, I go back to like this notion of like, we, we think about life, we often approach life from a place of scarcity. Um, but when we are really connected and connected to nature, we realize how abundant it is. I mean, if you really look at nature and the miracle of what it provides on a daily basis, 
the miracle of its ecosystems, of its permaculture, um, that it can provide us with all of the resources that we need across food and energy um, to foster a world that is peaceful and connected. Um, but of course, we need to acknowledge our separateness from it and and reconnect with it. Mm. Yeah, the the symbiosis there, not only in the gut microbiome, but also within our larger ecosystems, where you know we are essentially the in, in the parallel in the analogy. Now we are the microorganism to a larger being. The symbiosis mm, yeah. raises very interesting questions about everything from consciousness to the role that we are meant to play to be shepherds of this environment. Back to the regenerative farming topic um, with the course. I mean, what what is the goal for that course? Is it to get more people to understand that this is a direction that we should be advocating for? Or is it meant to be practical, like we can start regenerative farming in our gardens or something? Yeah. I mean, I think to a degree, it is both. Although I am, uh, though I don't like to call myself a realist. I do sometimes <laughs> live live within you know certain levels of expectation. I suppose uh, lofty expectations are disappointment and waiting to some degree. So you know, I don't expect that there's going to be hundreds of thousands of farmers that are going to take an online course and then you know switch monoculture practices into, uh, you know, labor intensive intercropping and, you know, biodynamic regenerative practices, though I do think that is possible. And I think that there is a growing movement around amongst millennials to reconnect with nature and to discover and, um, or rediscover techniques that allowed, you know, cultures like China to exist for 40, 50 generations without actually using much land, but feeding most of its people. Um, so, you know, there, these, the history of these practices is amazing. And I've gotten to see a lot of that firsthand. Um, I spent a lot of time up at Apricot Lane Farms. That's just north of um, here in LA that where I live. Uh, and they, they recently had a documentary that came out called The Biggest Little Farm, um, which I highly encourage everyone watch around, essentially two city folk that go out and buy 200 acres of, of dust and turn it into the most lush permaculture biodynamic farming experiment and all of the, uh, the tumultuous twos and fros along the way. Um, but... Um, but essentially, uh, sorry, I went, I went and kind of got off on a tangent there. Um, so you'll have to guide me back. <laughs> well, I think you were, uh, you got lost in the dream of the, of the biodynamic farm, the biggest little farm. Oh, right. Yeah. So, sorry. And then, so the course is, is to help to some degree, like, um, like John Chester, who's the, 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 the founder of that, but mostly, I would say the, the the bigger impact that a course like Soil as a Climate Solution um, can have, I think, is around advocacy. Advocacy, um, yeah. 
And, and I think that that's really massively important because I think that there's, obviously there's some of us that are going to be willing to go out and be pioneers of the land. But I think more of us can, um, who are urban, um, and maybe don't have the patience or skill sets for the agrarian life, um, can also be advocates and spread awareness around the importance of this practice and the importance of consuming ethically and responsibly as it pertains to the practices. Um, but, you know, I was amazed, you know, to be honest, like, you know, part of our ethos at Commune is to produce courses that promote and educate around societal well-being. Um, sure, we'll do plenty of like yoga and, and mindfulness and meditation courses and personal development and spiritual development courses. But part of the edict from the beginning was, you know, we also want to do um, create learning opportunities around so societal well-being. Um, and uh, even though a lot of those courses probably won't make as much money or be as participated in. But to be honest, I was incredibly surprised. I think we had just over 20,000 people register for that course, um, which is a lot of people. So, um, so that was, so there's definitely interest. Yeah, that was, there's enthusiasm that was an in, or maybe yeah. there's desperation. Yeah. I mean, I think there's, there's some of both. I mean, I, I, I just think that, you know, this idea maybe five years ago would have been, you know, the thin edge of the cultural branch. Um, but it's now, uh, um, becoming a more mainstream idea. And, um, and that's super important because essentially, if, you know, I think there's, um, if we just used the acreage, the agricultural acreage that we have in the United States and we're able to convert to regenerative farming practices, we could literally soak up all of the carbon in the atmosphere to get us back to sort of a, a place of symbiosis of homeostasis. And like now I've got, I don't know where we are, like 450 million particle or particles per million or something like that. Um, and so, you know, I think 350 was the threshold. So, you know, we have, so we're officially off the charts. We're off the charts, um, which is, you know, scary and can often, um, you know, I think the tricky part is that people are paralyzed and become numb in the face of the enormity of the problems and uh, indifference and apathy um, is a byproduct of capitalism and its um, and many of its uh, shortcomings. Um, but the good news is that there are techniques and there are ideas and there are there is human innovation um, and kind of irrepressible creativity that exists to address the most salient needs of our society. And part of it for me is it requires a change of in consciousness more than it requires a change in laws or leaders. I mean, inevitably it's both, but I think that you're not going to really see a change, a real change in laws or leadership um, or culture um, 
behavior, human behavior, right work, right action, etc., until we um, have a broader, larger change in consciousness. And mm-hmm. for me, it's because which one is more foundational? You know, it's the chicken or the egg. Clearly, the consciousness is the predecessor to our actions and our speech, which will determine our leadership. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, unfortunately, we live in a sort of value neutral society um, that I could sort of in best case scenario describe as relativist, where essentially values and precepts and moral guidelines kind of change through kind of our historical or cultural circumstances. That's the best case scenario. Um, right now mostly we live in a value less society uh, because we have essentially eschewed the spiritual principles that once were the guiding precepts um, of life that we don't really have any universal eternal truths by which we by that governs our behaviors and actions and you know essentially you can trace this back to the rise of Enlightenment-based ideas that um, that sanctified reason and rationality and the scientific method and individualism that essentially led to a culture of separatism and and value neutrality um, and you know what we're seeing right now is the natural um, playing out of of those ideas. Mm. Now we're getting somewhere. This is getting juicy. Yeah, I mean, this is kind of what's going on in my brain right now. It's like I've just been reading like a, a German political theorist named Hannah Arendt. I'm not sure if you're familiar with her and, or many people are, but essentially she coined the phrase the banality of evil, which you probably are um, familiar with, essentially the notion that everyday average people are capable of unimaginable, unfathomable horrors. Um, and that this arises from essentially apathy and indifference and an alienation from community and from society, essentially a valueless society um, where individuals are only treated uh, or only valued um, by their economic worth, where people become essentially like a transactional unit where they essentially maintain their human biochemistry through sleeping and eating and pooping and breathing and drinking water, and then essentially work, and that they're divorced from any sort of political life. And I I don't mean Republican or Democrat political, I mean the free exchange of ideas amongst individuals in public forums that can instill values with meaning that's why community is so needed because without community that we we lose that opportunity to have public discourse that then instills whatever eternal values might exist with meaning so when you essentially create this indifferent apathetic society which all it does is work in deference to a wage to then accumulate goods and services that are constantly marketed to you and to your not enoughness. Um, and then 
promises to sort of solve your discontents and um, and fulfill your desires through the accumulation of those goods and services, that then you essentially become what she called economic man, you know, essentially a person without values, a person without community, without identity, um, that you're craving belonging. And that is rich soil for totalitarianism and fascism. And, you know, as we can see in our own culture, you don't need much more than a red hat and a nationalist slogan, um, ratchet up some fear and provide an enemy. And you can get people fervently signed up because they are so desperate to belong to something. They're so desperate for an identity. And Hannah Arendt specifically is talking about um, Adolf Eichmann, um, who was essentially an incredibly unremarkable human being um, from an intellectual perspective, um, spoke very simply, was not particularly smart, um, and oddly, had no racist proclivities, but essentially in quest for belonging, for identity, and for honestly career promotion, became the biggest mass murderer in history. And, you know, these are the murky waters in which we swim, where, you know, a culture that is devoid, essentially a, a culture that creates um, systems and structures to maintain stability through the kind of supposedly mutually beneficial economic um, relationship between people, that kind of system aided by sort of a neoliberalist approach to government, where the government is essentially just an agent for the private sector and just maintains stability through um, regulating markets in the private sector, which is essentially what our government does. Mm -hmm. You have what the, the end product of that is mass alienation and the end of values. And so like nobody wakes up, Henry, in the morning, even the oil and gas executive, nobody wakes up and says, I'm going to warm the globe today. But in the absence of any values, that's what happens. Nobody wakes up, even the pharmaceutical executive, and says, I'm going to, um, you know, even the Sackler family. I mean, I, they don't wake up and say, I'm going to get everyone in this country or one out of every 25 people addicted to Oxycontin or fentanyl. Like they don't, but in the absence of any universal truths or values, that's what happens. I mean, you can trace everything. The slave trade, it was not, racism came around later to justify it. Mm -hmm. It was really a byproduct of joint stock companies in Europe. You know, it was a completely a byproduct of capitalism. Again, you can look at the opioid trade um, or the opium trade between Britain and China. There's you know, hundreds of examples that we can point to that are essentially the output of systems and structures that are devoid of values. And if anything, 
that is what we need. That is the shift in consciousness that we need right now. Because I don't really honestly have anything innately against market-driven economies at all. In fact, you know, capitalism can be credited for pulling a lot of people up out of poverty, for repudiating feudalism and 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 um, and economic inequality. But of course, like right now, when three people in the United States have more money than the bottom 50% combined, which is true, which is where we are right now, that system that was developed in this country, social democracy and capitalism, were developed to repudiate feudalism. But now here we are back to where we started. Mm. And in my opinion, the reason for that is because we have lost, it's a spiritual problem. It's not an economic problem. It's not a governmental problem. It's a spiritual issue is that we simply do not operate in a culture with any universal truths or spiritual principles. You make a very compelling case. And I have to say that the example you cited of the pharmaceutical um, company worker hits straight home for me because I my first job out of college was in pharmaceutical advertising. I've spoken on this on the podcast and I'm, I'm very open about it. I, I did it because like you said, I was lacking, I, I wouldn't say that I lacked values, but what I lacked was a connection to my values. And I, I do credit my yoga practice for tuning me into what really mattered to me. And once that became clear, I was like, I gotta go. I can't do this job anymore. Like it's, it's not enough to be neutral because like you said, the valuelessness, the neutrality itself is the absence of a protection against evil. And that's where yeah. you end up if you don't care if you don't inspect what you're doing and what your actions actually support. Yeah. I mean, it's all it comes back again to your point around connection. Uh, and that can be cultivated in a variety of ways. I mean, it's pretty hard to hate close up. I mean, I've seen this play out, you know, with uh, white supremacists when they actually confront a African-American in in real life, not on the internet, like in three dimensions, it's always the same. They say, well, it's not you. It's not you specifically. Like you're cool. Yeah, like, we're cool. But it's actually, you know, it's the fact that all of you are coming to take our job or, you know, whatever, the litany of, of, of ridiculous misplaced bullet points that we all are familiar with. Um, but it is very, very hard to hate close up. And so I think that, um, and that's a Brene Brown line, so I'll credit her. But, um, but and, and this is the key, is to create um, what I would call decentralized structures and systems that promote and foster community, community gathering places, reinvigorate our churches, but not just our religious institutions, our yoga studios, our athletic fields, um, our other places of worship and gathering. These are the places, these are the things that are going to foster the connectivity that we, you know, so desperately need. And, you know, I guess kind of maybe going back to the very, very first thing you um, asked me, 
it's taken me a little bit of time to warm up to, I suppose, is that, you know, at the core of Wanderlust, at the core of that mission was creating community and watching people uh, or, or creating the soil or the, the, the platform around which people can connect. Now, that was mostly like-minded people with shared values and a shared practice, um, and that's important. I think the bigger challenge is can we create forums and opportunities for gathering for people not in their own echo chambers, not in their own like groups, but actually um, create opportunity for people to come together that have opposing um, views on certain kinds of issues to disagree without being disagreeable and to solve some of the issues around, you know, social polarization and echo chambering and, you know, address our fractured, atomized culture. Mm -hmm. Right. I mean, we've sort of painted a, a dark picture of the current state of affairs right now. And, um, you know, that's, that may be the reality of, of where we are, but at the same time, and not to just paint a white brush over what you said, but you acknowledge that you were kind of surprised by the number of people who enrolled in the course on commune around regenerative farming, which as you pointed out, is not so much about personal healing or development so much as a broader societal level well-being challenge that we all have to face. So do you see that as being an indication that we are finally responding to where we've landed at this day and age? Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm optimistic in some ways. Uh, I do feel like there is a great cultural thirst for values, for a reconnection um, to spiritual principles that can guide us um, and and I, I live very close to that and to that community. Um, at the same time, you know, it's going to take a tremendous movement to undo um, this many of the systems and structures, power structures that are currently in place that essentially perpetuate um an organization for living that is innately unfair, unequal, um, and denies people. Um, I mean, obviously, you know, we have enough food to feed the world 10 times over. Um, we have enough productivity to address every issue. Um, we don't, what we need is the will. And, uh, you know, I think this movement is going to require some a very, very strong and honed message and some very, very powerful leaders um, because it's going to have to arise. It's going to have to sprout and grow from the bottom up um, like all great movements do. And, um, and it's going to require some inconvenience. It's going to require some sacrifice. Um, but in the end, I think it's going to be extremely necessary because it's not going to come from the power structures. It's not going to come, you know, even from Elizabeth Warren, you know, 
um, or Pete Buttigieg or any, I, it's not going to come from within the political sphere. How could it? You know, there's no moral authority there. There's, there's self-interest there. You know, I've been, you know, I, I had brief hopes that, you know, when Obama was elected, he would somehow be able to codify a message that allowed us to come together around something great that was bigger than our own individual selves, our own petty plights. Um, but it never happened. In fact, things got worse in a lot of ways. Um, and so, I, you know, I, I do look for leadership um, and... And that can be, you know, decentralized in some ways. I mean, I love the the models of distributed leadership, um, but there does need to be a centralized, you know, message and um, and mission. And um, and we're going to have to. And the people that are passionate and care about it are really going to have to step up in a big, big way because you know we are faced with certain time limitations <laughs> around certain things, as particularly as it pertains to global warming. Um, but, you know, listen, we were 70,000 years ago, there was, tw there was 2000 homo sapiens left, you know, there was a volcanic eruption that created sort of nuclear winter conditions and, uh, you know, massive uh, ice sheets formed over the Northern hemisphere. And we were reduced to 2000 people in East Africa. And from there, there was the cognitive revolution and the birth of language and art and literature and symphonies and culture and great monuments. So there's every reason to believe that we can do it, but it's going to take tremendous lift. And maybe a close to mass extinction before we change our ways. Who knows? Yeah. I mean, we are very crisis oriented as a species. Um, and, uh, you know, I was rereading a, um, a little piece of writing that I love very much by, uh, by the singer songwriter Portia Nelson, who at a workshop, um, was asked to write her life story in five chapters. Um, and it's called, there's a hole in the sidewalk. And, um, I won't recite the whole thing for you here. Um, but essentially we need to, we need to take another street we can't fall in the hole over and over again. Um, we need to be able to take a personal, what I would call, I would apply in some level the 12-step program to society that we essentially need to acknowledge there's a problem, that there's hope for change, um, and take an inventory of our works and actions and make amends. Um, that is the only way we're going to be able to, I think, move forward, you know, as a species with 8 billion people and limited resources. Well, I know how I feel about this question I'm about to ask you, but since this is Dharma talk, I, I, I need to, I can't let you go without asking you, what role do you think yoga and a yoga practice can play in moving us toward a more value-driven society and a more collective communal society. Yeah, well, it's just baked into the whole practice, this notion of yoking, of union. Um, I mean, many of the yogis will argue that 
Christ was a yogi because he said, uh, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Um, essentially, what Jesus was talking about or what every spiritual prophet and poet and sage and mystic from the Buddha to Muhammad to Jesus, um, they're all talking about connection and union. Um, I think union with your higher self and union with others. Um, I mean, my personal belief is that yoga provides us with a portal to understanding what is real. The kind of what Muktananda described as what is real. That which is real never changes. You know, what exists outside of space and time, of, of location and form. What are these things that are infinite, that have no beginning and have no end? And we access that through our limited ability, our limited sensory ability. Um, there's, we have a very hard time perceiving that objective fundamental nature of reality, uh, essentially things that exist without our ability to perceive them that are infinite. And, uh, and the breath and silence can give us a portal into those, um, a glimpse into the true form of things, not the shadow of things. Um, and connect us and give us a greater sense for that invisible thread that does connect us all. So this is obviously an incredibly, you know, powerful practice, but, uh, you know, obviously it gets very defined as in the Western world as asana. Um, but I think the, the yoga that I'm talking about that's going to connect us to each other and to our highest principles um, can be found in every, in every spiritual tradition um, because it's a different mask but the same face, um, that we are not separate from God. We are God, and we are not separate from nature, but we're a part of it. Um, and I think, you know, yoga allows us to reconnect with that simple idea. Beautifully put. I think that is the perfect spot to start to finish off this interview. Every episode of Dharma Talk ends with a rapid fire round of questions, which I call the prana round. It's a little bit lighter. Mm -hmm. <laughs> sure. But I'm going to ask you six questions. So please answer in minimum one word and maximum one sentence. Okay. <laughs> do, do my best. Right. In one word, why do you practice yoga? To connect. What's your favorite yoga pose and why? Hmm. Probably happy baby, just because I want to be one. <laughs> <laughs> that is a great answer. I love that. <laughs> what is the single best cue or piece of advice that you've ever received from a teacher? And it could be any of the teachers that you've... Um, encountered in yoga practice or any of the teachers maybe that you've brought onto commune to to share their realm of expertise well i would have to say it's my wife skylar um because she is my ultimate teacher and i think she taught me how to recognize my ego 
and I know this is too long for you, but Keep essentially going. through through example, um, she's told me she's shown me not to define myself through the eyes of other people, and I guess she might put it like, "Don't care what anyone else fucking thinks of you," <laughs> um, but um, but she's shown me to sort of live from the soul and, and not from the ego. Great. Recommend one book, either modern or ancient, for our listeners. Of course, in addition to your two books, which will be linked in the show notes. <laughs> Thanks. Oh, God, so many. But I'll just say The Untethered Soul by Michael Singer, because that's what's kind of on my bedside right now. That's a good one. Is yoga for everyone? Absolutely. Last question, Jeff. How can our audience get in touch with you, and how can we support you in your dharma? Uh, that's sweet. Uh, I'm actually very open to anyone emailing me at jeffk at onecommune.com. I love getting people's um, thoughts and impressions on things, um, and I read them all and respond to most of them. So, um, so feel free to reach out directly to me. Um, I do have a podcast, uh, and I talk a lot about these issues that we've talked about today and interview some great people. So that's a great way to support. And, you know, we offer amazing courses with all my heroes and on, on the commune platform, and they're all free for a certain period of time. Uh, I want to really democratize access to these teachings and, um, I think the best way to do that is just to not put any sort of financial barrier for people to be able to enjoy them. Um, and so, you know, I, I, I urge everyone to sign up for, for a course um, on the platform. And I think you can find something in there for, your, for you and your growth. I love what you're doing with Commune, um, the podcast and the online education platform. And I think that model is so cool. You're really uh, practicing what you preach in terms of getting people connected and removing the barriers. I did the Wim Hof course uh, a month or two ago and it was so cool. The The content is really high quality and yeah, you have not sacrificed anything by making it free for a time. So props to you and, and the team. Love what you're doing. I'll definitely keep watching out for exciting new courses coming out soon. Well, thank you, Henry. You're very well-spoken and you're a beautiful person. So thank you for taking the time today. Appreciate it. Thank you. And we'll talk soon. Have a great day. Okay. You too. Dharma Talkers, I hope you enjoyed listening to that conversation as much as I enjoyed having it. And if you did, please share it. Take a screenshot, share it on Instagram, and tag me, at Henry Wins. I love hearing from you about the conversations that make an impact for you. We have the ability to shape the world through our thoughts, words, and conversation. So let's influence the collective consciousness together. All my gratitude to Rory Wagstaff of Ease of Mind Productions for keeping our audio crisp and operations smooth, and to Patrick Kiebzak of Momentology Music and Art for supplying the powerful soundtrack to these conversations. Please remember to subscribe, rate, and review, and tune in to new episodes of Dharma Talk every Thursday. I'll speak to you next week, and until then, keep living your Dharma.